there's this little girl named Susie, and Susie, one of Susie's greatest joys in life was to read fairy tale stories. She loved the story about the prince and about the princess, about Prince Charming, whoever it was, and that somebody needed to be rescued, somebody needed to be found, and her favorite story was Cinderella's story. She just loved that one, that little Cinderella who was uh, Miss used and abused by her stepmom. Her dad had died, and she was kind of locked away, and life wasn't good for her. And then she'd read how then she would go to the, the big ball, and then you know she'd be rescued out of this life of misery by the prince. And so she loved that story. And she had an elderly neighbor across the, the fence, and they had a little gate between them because they were close friends. And little Susie would always go over to her neighbor's house and chit-chat with her, and, and they were quite good friends. And so one day Susie went over and was telling her neighbor a friend about Cinderella. And she wanted to know if the lady knew the Cinderella story. And she assured Susie that she did. And so then Susie said, well, I want to quiz you on it. And she said, fine, go ahead, ask me some questions. And so Cinderella, I mean Susie, said, you know, Cinderella went to the ball and then the, the glass slipper was put on her foot and the prince took her back to the castle. And then Susie looked at, at her elderly friend and said, and then you know what happened? And the elderly lady put down what she was doing. She grabbed Susie by the hands and she said, and they lived happily ever after. And Susie pulled her hands away and stood up and stepped back and said, well, no, that's not what happened. And the elderly lady said, it's not. She said, no. Well, then what exactly happened? She said, well, they got married, silly. All right, if you didn't get that, come and see me afterwards. I'll help you out with it. But you know, that's, that's the problem is, is that we have this idea about marriage being this fairy tale. Girls dream about their wedding day. I've got two girls. One's married. She had her fairy tale wedding. My other one, we're hoping that someday she gets married. It doesn't even have to be a fairy tale wedding. We'll just give her one for Pete's sakes. <laughs> Go on, get married, have someone else take care of you and your dog. You know, we don't mind, honestly. But yet, there's this whole concept, this whole idea of when you get married, it's just going to be this blissful thing. We're going to live happily ever after. And anybody that's been married for two weeks or longer knows that's not true. That whole romantic thing in my, my marriage came to a crashing halt in our honeymoon. We went, we got married in Canada, and we were not, you know, we didn't have a lot of money because there's two college students getting married, and so we didn't have a lot of money. And so we decided, of all the places in the world, to go and, and spend our honeymoon together to where we're going to have this blissful honeymoon, we went to Yellowstone and Jackson Hole. 35 years ago this last summer, it was like, man, who would have known that we would end up this close to Yellowstone? Anyway, so we went to Yellowstone, we had a great time, and then we went down to Jackson, and of course, being not, a lot, not having a lot of money with us, we were looking for all the free things we could do in Jackson, you know, art galleries and all the rest of that stuff. And so, as we were driving into town, we noticed it said, Jackson Museum, admission free, and we're like, Let's go. And so we pulled into the parking lot. Now listen, 
We should have known something was wrong when we pulled into the parking lot because there weren't any other cars there. First clue. Museum with no cars? Keep going. So anyway, we piled out because we're madly in love with each other and we're just all googly-eyed and you know, all the rest of that stuff. And so we walk in and we're holding hands because we're just married. We're newlyweds. Life is going to be grand. And we're walking in. And, and you walk in and the building might have been about the size of this building, except, and it was wide open like this, except they had this partition running right down the middle of it. And so we're kind of looking at it. And it's kind of weird. And so we, we kind of step over here because it says begin here. And we're going to start going through this, this museum. And this little gal, she comes up and she says, Hi, I'm... I'm so-and-so, and I'm going to be your guide through the museum. And I'm like, well, we're just newlyweds. We're newly married. We don't need a third wheel on this. We can figure it. No, if you want to go, you have to have a guide. And we go like, all right, so take us through. And so she's telling us about the pictures and the different things there. And it was primarily a story about a couple of different families that had settled into the valley of Jackson. And so we're walking through this whole thing, and we're kind of going like, you know, this isn't that great, but it's free. So we're going to, you know, we, we got it. And we came around the corner of this big partition, and there was this huge picture. And this little girl said, all of a sudden, she goes, and this is a picture of Jesus after his resurrection when he came to North America and ministered to the North American Indians. And I went, what? (laughs) That's not in the Bible. I said, wait a minute. This is a Mormon museum, isn't it? And she went, well, yes, it is. And I'm like, You tricked us. You duped us into coming in here. I can't believe this. This is, you're selling a pack of lies to people. You're not helping them spiritually. You're sending them to hell. And I'm just ranting and raving and just coming unglued on this little girl. And she's like, (laughs) worse yet is my new bride. She's looking at me. She's like, who are you? And all of a sudden, these three guys that are about six foot four in suits, they come up and they go, Excuse me, sir, you're going to have to quiet down and we're going to ask you to leave. You can't ask me to leave. I'm leaving because this place isn't helping anybody out at all. And I said, I'll bet at the end of this little tour, you give them the Book of Mormon, don't you? Yes. Well, all the Book of Mormon is is a roadmap to hell. You should be giving them a Bible. And we stormed out of there. Poor Lorinda. She was going like, you know, that guy that I married and we've been on this honeymoon together... He must have gone out to the car and left this crazy man here. I don't know who this guy is. He's lost his mind. The honeymoon was over. And you know, that's, that's what happens in our lives. We come to that place in our marriage and, and things get a bit messed up because we've got We've married someone, and either a pastor or a justice of the peace, they came along and you stood up in front of your friends and your family, and, the, and whoever was officiating the ceremony, they wanted you to say something like this that would, would be your commitment to each other, where you were going to stay with each other in the good times and in the bad times. You would be with each other when you had money and when you didn't have any money. And you would be with each other no matter what your health was like. When you're young and healthy or when you're old and unhealthy, you're committing to be with each other for the rest of your lives. And you stand up and you go, yep, that's what we're going to do. If you've ever been to a wedding, if you've ever been in your own wedding, you went through those things. And yet, as you step into this, 
there's a problem because the big problem is, is that most people, when they look at a wedding, they look at the whole process and signing that wedding license as a contract. But God isn't interested in contracts. What God is interested in, He's interested in a covenant with us. And what God does is He brings us to a place and He says, I want to have a covenant relationship with you. I, I, want to, I want my life to be part of your life. I want your life to be a part of my life. And so God, in throughout all of the Bible, He talks about a covenantal relationship. And what, here's what's the difference between a contractual and covenantal relationship. Uh, in a contract, particularly in a marriage, if you come with a mindset that my marriage is a contract rather than a covenant, in the contract you say, I take you for me. But if you're in a covenant relationship, you say, I'm going to give myself to you. In a contractual marriage, you say, you had better do this. And in a covenantal relationship, you say, how can I serve you? In a contractual marriage, it's, what do I get? In a covenantal marriage, it's, what can I give? In a contract marriage, it's like, all right, I'll meet you halfway, but in a covenantal relationship, it's like, I'm going to give you 100% and then some. In a contract, you say, well, I guess I have to. In a covenant, you say, I want to. You see, that's, that's what God is looking for in a covenant marriage. It's what God intended for us, to be long life, long time partnership in relationship with each other. And, and in that rela- relationship, we're exemplifying unconditional love, uh, reconciliation, sexual purity, and growth. And, and the covenant is an eternal commitment with God. Now, what happens a lot of time is people negotiate in and out of contracts. But in a covenant, you don't Get to negotiate. There's nothing to negotiate because the covenant comes right out of the heart of God. And it said, the Bible tells us that the steadfast love of the Lord is, is the, the um, impetus behind a covenantal relationship and it never ceases. So this morning as we're stepping into this, I want you to know that God has thought of covenants and has never thought of a contract. Matter of fact, When you go back and you look into Genesis, you're going to see that God made a covenant with Abraham. And he told Abraham, he says, what I'm going to do is I am going to bless the world through you. You are going to become a great nation. This is my covenant to you. I am going to make this happen, Abraham. Your your clan, your nation will be greater than than the numbers of stars in the sky and the sand on the beach, you are going to become a great nation among all nations. And all the people of the world will be blessed because of you. Did you know that came true? Because of Abraham and the covenant God made with him, Jesus came to this. That's what we're going to celebrate in about, you know, 20 days, 25 days. Is we're celebrating God's covenant to us. And yet... In all of this, those people that God made the covenant with, 
His children that he delights in, the ones he loves, the ones he forgives, the one he pursues. And despite the fact that God has been after them and pursuing them with all of who he is, they have chased after gods. They think they're smarter than God is. They take things into their own hands. And they believe that, that when all is said and done, that they're smarter and more prepared to do life on earth than God ever intended for them to be. They've outfoxed God. And yet, in nearly, uh, it's a consistent rebellion. God never just washed his hands of this rebellious people who went against him. He, he continued to discipline them. And the way he would discipline them is he'd bring this person in who would be a prophet. And a prophet is the guy that stands up and says, Thus says the Lord God Almighty, here's what you shall do. And these are the things that are going to happen. And if you don't come back and repent of your sin, this is the calamity that's going to fall upon you. But sometimes what God would do is he would say to these prophets, here's, here's the position I want you to get into. These are the things I want you to do as a human being. I want you to act in a certain way. I want you to perform certain things. I want you to be a visual picture for the people to see what our relationship what my relationship with them is like, how we have become spiritually deprived. They have walked away from me. So he gives this visual picture through a prophet's life. And the most vivid one of those, I think, and it's really significant, is, and, and it's even probably the most gut-wrenching, is the, the, and it's actually simultaneously beautiful at the same time, is this picture we get from the prophet Hosea. And I'll just read from you from chapter 1, just a little bit of it. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Giblam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And it goes on. You can read the rest of that story. Now, I'm going to tell you that 20 years ago, I would have never thought I would have stood up in front of a group of people and said the word whoredom four or five times within the first four or five minutes of my message. But there I did. Whoredom. Wow. So... What's happening here is that what God is saying to Hosea is, I want you to marry a prostitute. I want you to have children with this prostitute. And here's what God does for Hosea. I want you to hear this. Hear what God does for Hosea. He puts a love for Gomer in his heart. Now, that's not the greatest girl's name. I mean, if you're having a girl child, don't name her Gomer, okay? It's not going to go well. Not, Not a real, you know... Astrid would be better than that. So I'm just saying. But so Hosea's whole attitude towards this thing that God's asking him to do to paint this picture for Israel about their relationship with God is he's taking this woman. But he doesn't come with the attitude, I hate this woman and I'll marry her because God's commanded me to do this. I'm just doing this because God told me to. No, God put into Hosea's heart to love, pursue, and be wildly committed to Gomer, the prostitute. And despite his love for her, despite his romance, despite his care, despite him trying to help her flourish, Gomer repeatedly cheated on him, whored herself out to other men, and at one point in the book actually becomes the property of another man. 
And Hosea actually has to sell some of his possessions, go find that guy, and buy his wife and the, the mother of his children back from that man. And he did this because God's saying, this is a picture of the relationship of the people who call me by name, the ones that say, yes, Jesus, I'll follow you. I believe in you. We do all those things. And, and it steps out and we become kind of like, like Gomer. We've hoard ourselves out to other things other than God. And so I wanted to tell this to you because I wanted you to get a picture of how serious God is in his delight for us, his love for us, and his care for us. And I want you to get the picture that even though we're unfaithful, God is still faithful. I've said all that because we're leading up to what we're going to be looking at on the Sermon on the Mount teaching. I wanted to give you a baseline of understanding. I wanted to give you a picture of God's mind in all of this. And so as we step into this message from Jesus this morning, I just want to say a few words on the outside of it because we're talking about a subject that's really close to a lot of people's hearts. And maybe you're in a marriage where you're struggling. You're not sure that you really want to hear anything about marriage and divorce. Maybe you grew up in a family and experienced divorce and still feel the sadness. Maybe you've experienced the pain of divorce. And maybe even you went to a church where they said divorce is this kind of unforgivable sin and they kind of ostracized and made you feel like a secondhand citizen. I want to help you this morning because I hope this message, it brings great clarity. I hope it brings, um, my desire is that it brings hope to your life and clarity about how God views who you are. It doesn't matter what somebody else says about you. It doesn't matter what ch some church has, has said you are. Because there's a lot of times other people in churches, they're doing the work of the devil by being the accuser for him. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. And so, I, I want us to understand what Jesus is teaching here in this passage. You know, he started off by, he's in the Sermon on the Mount, kind of like a couple of weeks ago, we started off by looking at how he's redefining what it means to follow God. Because a lot of people in his day, they were following God and they thought they were really, really good people because they were doing all these wonderful things. And so what Jesus says is he redefines the whole thing about anger and, and what anger really looks like when it comes from the heart. And then last week, we looked at sexuality and lust and what Jesus thinks about that and how that plays into our life and how it can absolutely destroy us. And now he's going to talk about divorce. And, and the only thing he's not looking for you to do is to find behavior modification. He is not interested in behavior modification. And what he's telling us this morning is that the true godliness only comes when our hearts have been transformed by him. You can... You can try all the behavior modification you want and you will still be the same person in three weeks, in three years, and in three decades. Unless your heart is transformed by God, you will continue to be 
and do the same things that you've always done. So let's see what Jesus has to say this morning about um, marriage and divorce from the Sermon on the Mount. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, I'm telling you right now, this raises all kinds of crazy questions from people. Because everybody's going like, listen, I know that in this room right now, I don't think... I don't think there's a single person in this room that hasn't been affected by divorce at some level of an, or another. Either you have been divorced or you have family members who have been divorced or you've got close friends who have been divorced. It runs through the whole thing. And as you read what Jesus just said, you're going like, this is horrible. I'm in deep trouble. My friends are in deep trouble. We've We're doing all kinds of wicked things here. I want you to relax. Take a deep breath right now. Put your tray down. Put your coffee on it and relax a little bit. Just kind of, you know, like, okay. Because Jesus Jesus has got something for you that I don't think you see when you immediately take a look at this. Because a lot of people think that, you know, adultery was if you had an affair with another married person. So why would getting a divorce from my wife, make her the victim of adultery. And if I marry a woman who's been divorced, which would mean she's single now, why would that make her an adulterer? Doesn't make sense. And so a really important thing to remember as we step into this is that Jesus is a really, really smart guy. And so what he's talking about isn't just something he pulled out of thin air. He's, he's got a good reason to bring this to us. And so we have to walk through this one step at a time, one thought at a time. And the first item I want you to notice here is who is the audience that Jesus is talking to? Because at the onset of this Sermon on the Mount, when people gathered around him, remember there were two groups of people. There were the disciples who came and sat at his feet and said, Jesus, teach us, we want to learn, we want to live godly lives. And then there was the crowd who gathered around Jesus, and they said, give us something really pithy so that we can go back and impress our friends with some spiritual jargon that's going to make them really impressed with what we heard you say. But don't go too crazy, Jesus, because we're not that interested in going deep with you. We just want something we can share with somebody else that sounds really good. And so you've got these two different things. And, and those in, in the disciples and in the crowd, there were men and women. There were Jews and Gentiles. There were children and old people. It was a cross-section of all of society sitting right here at Jesus' feet. But now when you take a look at what, who Jesus is talking to, he's talking to the men. Now, is Jesus just talking to the men because he, he thinks guys are stupid and they need a slap upside the head? Regardless of what your wife might think, that's not true. Guys aren't broken. We're not perverted. We're not stupid. We are who God created us to be. We're different than women. Thank you, Jesus. Amen, right? I should be getting a lot of hallelujah. Praise the Lord on that one. Fellas, just saying. So, 
Here's, here's why Jesus is talking to the guys about this. Because in the context at that time when Jesus was teaching this about divorce, the only person that could actually file for divorce was the man. The woman had no rights. She had nothing. This is, this is actually how divorce worked in the first century. The man came home, he walked in the house, went in his bedroom, got his little duffel bag, threw some stuff in there, went in the bathroom, got his razor, his toothbrush, his toothpaste, his deodorant, threw it in the bag, zipped it up, put it over his shoulder, walked to the door, and he looked at his wife, and he said, see ya, we're divorced, and he walked out the door. And the woman was left with all the kids and no money. She had nothing. And so the guy walks out the door. The problem is, is that even if all of a sudden she was able somehow miraculously to raise the kids up to where they could work the farm and they could gain some money, or maybe she played the mega lotto and she got a lot of money, the problem is, is the man that walked out and said, I'm divorcing you, see you later, when she had money, he could walk right back into the picture and go, you're still my wife, these are my kids, and this is my money. You see, there was no protection for the woman whatsoever, not one little bit at all. And, and, and so it was even unlikely that you would ever be able to do anything at any time. And here's the problem. When that guy walks out, even if there was another guy who went like, man, I really think this lady's awesome. I think her kids are awesome. I think I'm going to marry him. He wouldn't do it. Because that guy that walked out the door, he's still lurking out there and he still has rights to her when he walks back in the house. And this guy's not going to marry somebody that somebody else has the rights to. And so it was this whole complicated and complex whole thing set up. But what we have to understand is when we take a look at the law of Moses written in the Old Testament and you compare it to the, the ancient Near East and what they were doing, this whole thing that Moses did is, is striking contrast how Moses and God actually had the protection of women in mind. And we find that from Deuteronomy chapter 24. Um, I may not read all of this because I, I just probably, am, you can read it up on the screen if you want to, but I'm just going to read the part that really is important for us to understand. And it says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, she departs out of his house and, she be, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, there's all this other stuff that goes on. But the part that is important for us to understand is, is that he has found some indecency in her and then writes her a certificate of divorce. So the indecency, what that means in the Hebrew language and the understanding of it, is there he found something where she was being sexually immoral. She had violated her vow sexually, and so then he says, wait a minute, we're done here, I, this is not what we vowed to. So here's your certificate of divorce, adios. And, and the certificate was actually a way of protecting the woman in the ancient world. It meant that her first husband could not come back 
and claim her. He couldn't walk back in and go like, now you've got money. I don't know how you did it, but you got money in your mind. She's going, no, got the certificate of divorce right here. You longer, no longer have any claim on my life, on anything at all. And, and they've actually, archaeologists have actually dug up and found these certificates of divorce. And this is what they actually say. You are free to remarry any Jewish man you wish. So when Jesus comes along in the Sermon on the Mount, here's basically what he's saying. He's going, you know what? You've all been dividing up the sheep and the goats like this. The bad guys are the guys who divorce their wives just by walking out and don't give them a certificate of divorce to protect them. You've been thinking, marriage exists for my own fulfillment. I'm free to divorce anytime I feel like it. My, my options are open. As long as I give her a certificate of divorce, then I am righteous in God's eyes. I'm in compliance with God. In that culture, it was probably even worse than that. Unless the woman had a rich relative that that would take her in as a quasi-servant, and that was very unlikely, she basically had two choices. The first choice was to become a wife to a, a man who already had a wife, and she entered into that relationship as the wife, the second wife, and she was seen as the damaged goods She was not prime. She was not the thing. She's not the person that you wanted. This was a a, a place where she was in in a tough spot. And so she was one of a multitude of wives. Or her second option was is that she would become a prostitute and earn a living that way. Either way, she'd be living in a sexually degraded pain of adulteral condition. Jesus is saying a kingdom kind of husband will recognize that thing. And that that kind of a man will be more concerned about the well-being of his wife than he will be about himself. He's he's saying, whoever this man is who's living in the kingdom of God will reject that idea of keeping your options open and looking for a spousal upgrade. We see that all the time, even now in our own culture. All you have to do is listen to the news. All you have to do is go to the tabloids and you see the the movie stars and the Hollywood elite and and the athletes and the musicians who are trading in who they had for somebody else. And and if any of them ever have a marriage that lasts longer than 15 years, they're heralded as these great people. Our 41st president who just died, President Bush, do you know how long he was married? Yeah, 72 years. Some of you aren't going to live that long. And I'm going to tell you something. I would have loved to have been a fly on their wall because I'm going to tell you, it wasn't blissful all the time. You know who his wife was. She was tough. He didn't get away with anything. And yet, they worked out their differences and had a lasting marriage for 72 years. So here's the thing that we want to keep in mind is Jesus here, he's not giving us laws. He's describing true passing goodness. And for many people, the question is this. Is divorce ever permissible? And if so, when from a biblical standpoint can a person actually get a divorce? And so I want to look, I want to go into two places 
because I want to take you to where the rabbis at Jesus' time, rabbis are these teachers, and they had these, these rabbinic schools, and you'd become a disciple of a rabbi, and you would follow and learn and all the teaching that he had. And so we've got these rabbis that do the teaching, and then we've got Jesus. Jesus was also a rabbi. They called him rabbi. He did teaching, and it was totally different than the other teaching. And so I want to take you to both those places. And um, because, you know, what we're looking about divorce is that we, we know that Deuteronomy mentions divorce on the grounds of indecency. In the Hebrew language, that was just simply sexual immorality. On that ground for divorce, there would be permission to remarry. But we wonder, what about other cases? What, about, what happens if there's abuse or abandonment? Will those cases, are they covered anywhere in the New Testament? They're not overtly said, but if you go to Exodus chapter 21, it is all covered in there. And so there is this permission, if there is someone who has abandoned or abused, there is permission to get out of this. And here's what it primarily says in Exodus 21. If a man takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her, that's the first wife's food, her clothing, or her conjugal love. If he does not provide her with these things, she is free to go without payment of money. She is free to go, but without payment of money. So let me explain that a little bit. When a woman got married, her dad would give this inheritance um, to the man who was marrying her. So it's like, you know, 15 cows, five sheep, uh, five pieces of silver and this property over here. And so when the man got married, he got all this stuff that came with the woman. And so if, if she leaves because, if she's divorced because she has committed an offense on um, abandonment, abuse, or on sexual Im, uh, immorality, she gets nothing when she walks away. And so... That's, but she does get the certificate of divorce. And so, once again, what the law is seeking to do is to protect the woman in the ancient world. In the ancient world, when a husband took a new wife, the second wife tended to get the good stuff, and the first wife he made a vow with when he first got married, she got nothing. And so he, can't, he has to still provide support, food, and clothing, and love for her. And if he breaks that vow, she's free to leave, to get a divorce. And that would mean getting the certificate and being able to remarry. Over time, though, rabbis took to these two passages, the one in Deuteronomy, the one in Exodus, and here's the overarching principle involved. Marriage is a vow that covers three areas. Fidelity, that means no sexual unfaithfulness. Provision, love, that means sexual um, intimacy and affection. Where the vows are broken, the victim of the broken vow has the right to get divorced and remarried. Rabbis debated this in Jesus' time and constituted breaking these vows, how much food and what kind of clothing. They would make all kinds of rules about um, the conjugal love. Listen, this is, this is craziness. Rabbis said husbands had to offer to be intimate with their wives twice a week or she could divorce him. This is a, it's from the ancient rabbinic world. Uh, or the rabbis sometimes would teach once a week if he had a donkey driver, if the husband was a donkey driver, he had to 
have sexual relations with his wife once a week. But that's kind of like being a truck driver. He was out on the road all the time. And if the husband was unemployed, I'm not making this up. This is from the old rabbinic teaching in Jesus' time. And if the, the, the husband was unemployed, he had to offer himself to his wife every night or she could divorce him. With no Viagra. Wow. Now, did the rabbis believe that there was a biblical grounds for a, a divorce around abandonment and abuse? Of course they did. Abandonment was the extreme of, of breaking the vow to provide. Abuse was an extreme form of breaking the vow to love. And so the rabbinic framework for understanding marriage and divorce and remarriage is based on that. In Jesus' days, there was a, a new development. There were two famous rabbis that kind of came along around Jesus' time, the Hilly and Sham, Shammai. Rabbi Hilly had a new interpretation of Deuteronomy 24.1. He claimed that it said a man could divorce his wife for any cause of indecency. And when it says that, it meant any cause at all. Rabbis in the whole... Hilia's school decided that any cause of divorce was available to men and any cause covered a, any fault you could conceive of. And they wrote down a lot of them. But here's how it kind of played out in the home. If the husband came home and the wife had burnt the pot roast and everything else, he could, that's cause enough for divorce. If he walked in the house and his wife's hair wasn't up, the way it was supposed to be as a good Jewish woman, her hair was hanging down, that's cause for divorce. If his wife, this is actually written down, if his, if his wife was in an argument with him that was loud enough to be heard by the neighbors, that was cause enough for divorce. And they could get divorce and, and offer the certificate of divorce. And that was for any reason at all. Now, we find that the any clause, any reason clause, was even popular around Jesus' day, and we find it in one of the most unusual places. You know all about it. We're going to talk about it in 25, 23 days. Excuse me. It's about Joseph and his fiancée, Mary. And it says that Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to, to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her Quietly. Now what that, see they were engaged. But in, in Jesus' day, if you wanted to break the engagement, it, you had to have a divorce. And so it, 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 this is where Joseph found himself. And in doing it quietly, it's not a vague kind of thought out there. It was actually a technical term. And he meant he would not call her an adulterer in court and that he would get and any cause divorce, and that meant he would pay the price. He would support the child. So any cause divorce is based on this interpretation from Rabbi Hilia. And he says Deuteronomy saying you could divorce your wife on any cause. However, Rabbi Shammai and his following disciples, they disagreed and they said, no, that passage in Deuteronomy refers only to sexual immorality, so only breaking that vow or the vows of provision and love as found in Exodus 21 
were the legal grounds for divorce. They said any cause of divorce was wrong. In Jesus' day, this was a big debate. And we're told at one time, the Pharisees came to Jesus and they said to him, and they set a trap for him. And they asked him this question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? And when they did this, they weren't just asking Jesus, Rabbi, is divorce always against law? That's not the question they were asking. They already knew the answer to that. And the question that they were asking is they wanted Jesus to interpret Deuteronomy 24. They wanted to know, are you a Hilia guy or are you a, a Shema guy? And the Pharisees, they already knew who Jesus was because he'd already rejected the any cause of, of divorce. And the reason that this was a trap is because shortly prior to that, the guy that was the... the the leading um, government authority over Galilee, where Jesus is teaching this, his name is Herod. And Herod, he fell in love with this woman named Herodias. And Herodias happened to be married to Herod's brother. And so what Herod did is he gave his wife a uh, any cause divorce. You know, uh, I came home. And, you know, you didn't have dinner ready when I wanted it, so you're divorced. And so she was out. Then he got Herodias to divorce his brother, and then the two of them got together and got married. And here's what happened is John the Baptist saw all this going on, and he goes to Herod, and he goes, this is not a legal divorce. This is not the one that follows the, the law given by Moses, so you're not really divorced from her. And do you know what Herod did with John the Baptist? Yeah, lopped his head off. And so these guys, they're hoping that Jesus is going to come along and say, I'm a, a Shammai guy, and I don't believe in the, uh, any cause for divorce, because the first thing they're going to do is they're going to run and tell Herod. And then Herod's going to come along with a big old sword and chop Jesus' head off. That's where they're going. That's what they want to see have happen. But here's what Jesus did. Here's what Jesus did. He answered them, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? He said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they no longer, they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Now, I, I, want, I want to talk to you about this because this, Jesus is going all the way back to Genesis. And he's given them this really packed up, loaded the theology here on marriage and divorce. They don't know it, but Jesus is going to school them right now. Because if you look at what God does in Genesis, here's what he does. Look at this. He separates and then he joins together. He separates light from darkness and then he puts them together to make day. He separates the sky from the earth and he puts them together to make our environment. He separates the dry land from the seas and puts them together to make our planet. Creation is God separating and then joining to defeat chaos and make peace or shalom. So he creates man and he makes a woman. Does anybody remember how, he, how God made Eve from Adam? Took a rib, right? That's what it says. And people kind of go like, took a rib. Well, that's, that's not really very scientific. How do you do that? Well, God's God, and God can do whatever he wants to. But let me, let me give you a different thought about this from a guy who's really brilliant in this area. His name's John Walton, and he's done a lot of writing and thinking about this. And he says that the word rib is much better translated side. 
And, and you'll see that in the footnotes in some of the newer translations, that's what it says. It says, sighed. In other words, the writer of, of um, Genesis is not describing the process of the physical construction of the woman's skeleton. It's not like God's using Lego or something else to build the woman. The writer is naming God's intent about the nature of man and woman in marriage. They are created equal, of equal worth, to stand side by side, to have the the capacity of separateness, but also oneness. Side by side, God separates day from night. God separates sky from land. God separates the sea from the land. And now male and female are made to be separate so that they can be joined together and the two shall become one flesh. So, this is the new creation, new shalom, oneness of heart, will, and servitude. It's like the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's a beautiful passage. And what this means, Jesus is saying, is that divorce is undoing creation. It's unraveling shalom, peace. It's why Jesus says, what God has joined together, let no one separate. That's why the Bible is so serious, so severe about divorce. And by the way, if you're feeling a little bit heavy right now, if you're feeling weighted down with this message, I want you to understand this. That the disciples, as they sat at Jesus' feet and heard this teaching for the first time, they were like, are you kidding me? Look at what they said to Jesus in chapter 19 of Matthew. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. In other words, the disciples are saying, if I'm just going to be stuck with this woman, who, who in their right mind would do that without having an escape plan? The, fairies, the Pharisees thought for sure that Jesus was out of his mind and couldn't be right. And so they had another question of him. And they said, why, did, why then did Moses, this is in Matthew 19, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And here's what Jesus said to them. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another commits adultery. Jesus is getting to the real issue when it comes to divorce. And as we have seen over and over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount, it is not about behavioral compliance but it is about the heart. The problem that necessitates the tragedy of divorce is the ultimate problem of the human condition, hard-heartedness. And Jesus didn't say uh, Moses commanded you to get divorced. He said he permitted divorce because of the hardness of heart. You know today's new any cause divorce is called it's called incompatibility we're just not compatible we've tried it for seven years we've tried it for 15 years we've tried it for 20 years and we finally the light just dawned on us we're just not compatible there's this this really smart other guy Uh, he's an old guy he's dead he's you know probably 100 years dead by now but gk Chesterton, a great thinker in the Christian and writer in the Christian realm, here's what he wrote about this. I have known many happy marriages 
but never a compatible one. The whole aim of marriage is to fight through and survive the instance when incompatibility becomes unquestionable. For a man and a woman, as such, are incompatible. God actually created us to be incompatible. And then he said, come together and be like iron sharpens iron. That's how God knocks off the rough edges in our lives, by giving us, by giving you women great guys. (laughs) Fellas, I'm trying to help you out this morning. You got to stay with me. Wake up. Wake up. All right. I'm going to skip a little bit here because I'm going to get to the part that I think is really going to... We've got to come to the point, okay? Um, The main picture God uses to describe his relationship with his people is that of a covenant, right where we started with. It's a covenant like a marriage. And Israel was his bride. The church is now his bride. And God makes this statement through the prophet. And if if you're thinking like, you know, I'm doomed, I'm divorce, the whole thing, and God must hate that, and God looks down on us because we're divorced. How could God ever think? You, I mean, whatever negative context you think you know about God in divorce, and that God really doesn't understand your plight, if God really doesn't get it, I want you to hear what he said through Jeremiah the prophet. He said, the Lord said to me in the days of King Joash, have you seen what she did? That's Israel. The faithless one, Israel. How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore. And I thought, after she has done all of this, she will return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister, Judah, saw it all. She saw that all for all the adulteries of the faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, she, but she too went and played the whore. That's God. That's God talking about his beloved. That is God talking about his bride. God knows the humiliation of rejection. God knows the pain of betrayal from hard-hearted people just like me. God says in the Bible through the prophet, he's, he's been through divorce. Did you know God's a divorcee? He's been through divorce. He understands your pain. He knows what you're dealing with. And in God, he's invented the first um, divorce recovery program. Did you know that? God created the first divorce recovery program and it's at a place called Calvary and the price for the course is one blood-stained cross and Jesus paid our price. And he was the first one to go through this program and it is still in session. The deep reality is that we are all implicated in this divorce God is talking about. We have all been unfaithful to God. And that's why any church that divides people into non-divorced first-class Christ followers and divorced second-class Christians is theologically errant and spiritually destructive. One of the most important spirit on one of 
on the most important spiritual level, we have all been unfaithful and we all need the cross. Hear me on this as I close up. Divorce is a part of our world. It's a part of our lives. And, and here's the beautiful thing about this whole thing. Even, even when there is sexual impurity, sexual immorality within the marriage, that doesn't mean you write off the relationship. Jesus has never called us to do that. He says, if, if, and the if is pointing to this, if the person who has broken the vow of the marriage has a tender heart, is looking for reconciliation, is, is offering up confession and repentance and seeking forgiveness, then pursue healing the relationship. Continue to go after it because God, guess what God's in the business of doing? God is in the business of redeeming that which is dead. He raises those things that are dead. He raised Jesus from the grave when he was dead and he will resurrect your marriage. That's what he's in the business of doing. And, and so if you've gone through the pain of divorce, if, whether it was your fault or not your fault, whatever it was, I don't care what it was, I don't even want to know. I want you to know in this building, in this church, there are no second-class people. We all stand at the foot of the cross as sinners redeemed by Jesus' blood. And it doesn't matter if you are divorced or not divorced. It doesn't matter if you're single or married for 35 years. I don't care if you're a homosexual or a transgender. I don't care about any of that stuff because we all come and we stand at the foot of the cross and we say, Jesus, I need your forgiveness in my life because I've screwed up my life. Welcome to Wind River Community Church, the church of screw-ups. Amen? Yeah, everybody should say amen on that one. Woo! And I am the chief screw-up. I'm going to tell you something. If it wasn't for the grace of God, I wouldn't be married to my wife. God has given me the most gracious woman on the planet. And she has long endured some of my shenanigans. And she has kicked my fanny with Jesus' help. Here's the thing. We talked at the beginning of this. When I came in, we started talking this morning. We talked about this covenant that God had with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for all of Israel. He, had, he, he wants us to be in a, a covenantal relationship with our spouses and with our children and with each other. If you come and you say, hey, I want to be a member at the church, we don't give you a membership sheet. We give you a membership covenant sheet. And, and, and because of what Jesus did on the cross for us, he has given, his, his, these are Jesus' words. I'm giving you a new covenant. I'm giving you a new covenant through my blood. I'm giving you a new covenant in my body. It's a new covenant. And in 2 Corinthians 3, 4 through 6, it says, 
Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of what? New covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Let me finish off this last little thought. This is a place where we are not broken up into married people, never married people, divorced people. Just all sinners whose lives are a train wreck apart from God, but who are learning to live as apprentices to Jesus in this reality of his kingdom of grace from up there, down here in our lives. That is why this is a place where Anything is possible. Healing is possible. Strong marriages are possible. Forgiveness is possible. Grace is possible. So whatever you do, don't miss grace. I don't care where your marriage is at. I don't care where your mind is at. I don't care what you've experienced. I'm going to tell you right now, the grace of God covers it all. All your sins are covered by the blood of Jesus. There isn't anything you've done that cannot be cured and taken care of and forgiven by Jesus. You have all the opportunity. Every day you wake up, God gives you a new piece of clean paper and says, start your day fresh today. You don't live in yesterday. You live today fresh with God. Because guess what? God is a God of the second chance, the third chance, the fourth chance, the fifth chance, the sixth chance. You remember the woman at the well? She had five husbands and the last guy she was just living with. And Jesus brought grace to her and said, your sins are forgiven. Jesus says to you today, your sins are forgiven, so live like it. Live like you're a child of the king. Our Father this morning, we are so thankful. We stand in awe of the goodness of your mercy to us. We thank you that you give us freedom from ourselves freedom from our sin, freedom from the things, God, that would hold us back, freedom from the lies of the enemy that tell us that we're not a child of God, that tell us that we are second-class citizens, telling us that we've messed up our entire lives, we've messed up our children, we've messed up our grandchildren, but those are lies straight from the pit of hell, and they're not true. Because you are a God who forgives. You are a God who comes and gives us a second chance. You are the God who redeems. You are the God who raised Jesus from the dead. And you are the God who raises marriages from the brink of death. And so we pray today, God, that you would raise up marriages in this church. Raise up these people to walk in the fullness of Christ, knowing that there is nothing that they have ever done that is going to condemn them because they are free in Jesus. So bring that freedom to our lives. Help us to live as men and women who love each other desperately, deeply, and as you would have us do unconditionally. Thank you for your goodness to us. We pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.